welcome to the Acoustic Guitar Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Grizzle, joined for this episode by Mimi Fox. Today we're talking about acoustic jazz. Our guest panel discusses the great American songbook and whether these songs continue to endure because the songs themselves are fresh or because musicians give them a fresh spin. If you like what you hear, please be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews improve our rankings, which helps other guitarists find the show. We really appreciate it. And as always, you can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash acousticguitarplus and becoming a member of our Patreon community. Joining Mimi and me for this lovely roundtable are two more San Francisco-based acoustic jazz guitarists, Paul Mailing and Nick Rossi. Yes, it is indeed an all-star lineup. Paul Mailing is the founder of the Hot Club of San Francisco and is often referred to as the godfather of American gypsy jazz. Nick Rossi is a guitarist, band leader, writer, and historian with a long-time focus on pre-bop jazz and related American music. And Mimi is a jazz guitarist, composer, and virtuosic improviser. But I'll let my co-host introduce herself. I've been playing guitar since I was 10 years old. Um, like many folks, I started out playing folk music. And fast forward half a century, I still think of myself as a folk musician, even though I'm known as a jazz musician, because I love acoustic music and all acoustic styles of music and all the subgenres within acoustic uh, music. So for me, it's a seamless line from Elizabeth Cotton's Freight Train to Tommy Flanagan's Freight Train to John Coltrane. Boy, that was unintentionally uh, hip. And pithy. I think of all these uh, styles as part of uh, who I am as a, as a jazz artist. They all make me who I am. Nick, what do you think about that connection between folk and jazz? It's kind of interesting that the concept that, that Mimi introduced of still thinking of myself as a folk musician, I mean, I, I, that resonates with me. I mean, I still think a lot of what I do is, is folk music of sorts. Um, and yeah, I, I've, I've kind of gravitated and focused on the acoustic instrument for, for quite some time now. There's so much history in both folk and in jazz music and with Jazz standards, we hear so many versions of the same song, but it still sounds new. So, Paul, let's start with you on this one. How do you keep things fresh? This is the trick. This is really the trick about being a preservationist and being true to the genre. Um, like like uh, Mimi and I did a show of all Beatles tunes at, at the SF Jazz thing. And one of the fun things about doing that is it's really easy for the listener because they're so familiar with the tunes. And this is not a critique in any way, Mimi, but one of the good things about that show was the compare and contrast of, of Mimi's trio versus our quintet was that we tried really hard with our arrangements to keep the sing-along factor there. So the, the listener is like, yeah, I know where I am. I know where I am. We're probably coming up on the bridge, even if they don't know what a bridge is, you know, whereas... Mimi's trio used the tunes more as a departure point like jazz artists do for, you know, complete freedom of improvisation. To me, it's the Beatles. And so it's always singable, uh, you know, but yeah, once we played the melody, we well, also we reharmonize. Yeah, it's different. It's a different concept. As a jazz musician, one of my goals, aside from bringing the music of Django and jazz manouche forward into the 21st was is to, to, to help people, re Americans especially, to realize that jazz is an American thing, like, like Marlboro cigarettes or Levi's jeans, that 
is part of our DNA as Americans. And it's not, it doesn't have to be off-putting. You know, uh, so many people think they don't understand jazz and that jazz musicians are shooting over my head. It's an intellectual pursuit that feel, makes me feel like I'm left out of the conversation. I hear that from so many uh, audience people that come up and say, I don't like jazz, but I like what you're doing. And I say, well, tell me more about that. And they usually end up saying something to the effect of what I just said, where they think the musicians are just shooting over the heads of the listeners. And so I'm really hell bent on this of making jazz like something that people can relate to. See, for me to make a jazz piece fresh, I have to bring all of my skills as a composer as well as a feeling human being into it so that, um, you know, like for example, if, you know, there's been 10 million versions of all blues, but if I play all blues, I might start with a more, you know, I might start with something like a... try to think of a different way of doing something you know there I started and someone would say oh that reminds me of Delta Blues the way I started I, I don't care what you want to call it to me I'm just trying to bring something fresh to the tune instead of starting with yeah I tried to make it something people didn't expect me to be playing open strings and doing all blues and the way I look at it that's good you know that's good because then I'm creating something fresh and so I think about as a as a composer, if I can bring the freshness of what I write and compose into an arrangement that I'm doing, then that's going to make it, you know, come alive. And I mean, that's how I felt about doing the Beatles stuff. The, the original versions are so classic and iconic. And so what can I add, what can you add to a perfect story? And so in my opinion, you have to, to make a new story, a, a sub story out of the original story and tell a compelling one. So and that's, that's just my bent on it. I want to introduce some controversy here. I think part of the reason we continue doing a lot of these songs, and I'm talking about great American songbook standards, is that they, I think the material itself is inherently fresh. I don't think it's a matter of, you know, any of us as individuals, you know, needing to make this material sound, you know, better than it is at its core. I think what it what it, it really is a case of us kind of bringing that material to life, you know, because the, the songs are really just um, notes and chords and lyrics if we're singing or working with the singer or thinking of the lyrics. So I think it's really just kind of like, you know, um, giving it a body, you know, taking the spirit and, you know, being possessed by it. But but I think like I think inherently like the music, the reason we're still doing tunes that were written, like I said, in some cases, 100 years ago, is that there's something to them to begin with. I can't think of a single song that I'm so sick of playing that I can't find a way to have fun. In fact, I almost prefer playing things that I'm sick of. Um, there are a couple tunes in my book that I play almost every gig just to get that feeling of like, I'm so sick of this. Let's see which corners have dust in them that we can explore and make new again or have fun with, you know? So that's actually more of a challenge uh, at, on an artistic level is to just like, 
why don't I like this song? Let's find out something to like about it. Well, also, don't you guys feel like for me, sometimes if I put something in a different meter um, and change the time, so change the time feel, maybe change the tempo of the tune. If it's something that's generally played as a fast bop piece, what if I play it as a ballad? How is that going to open up different things for me? So for me, yeah, I agree with you, Paul Minister, feel like, you know, taking seeing what it is that I can do that is again going to make it it comes back to uh, to Grizz to Nick Grizzle what you were first uh, asking how to make it fresh how to make it come alive uh you know that's up to us I I look at that as part of my job as an artist you know for example in working with male vocalists they usually play things in the standard key but working with female vocalists I have to transpose a lot into different keys and I look at that as a challenge like well if they're going to sing you know misty but instead of it being an e flat maybe they want it in a g or b flat then you know could I add harmonics here what could I do to spice it up what is going to change it and so that's what I that's always has been my philosophy because otherwise you feel like you're mailing it in and I would rather do something else than play music if I'm ever going to mail it in so Okay, so when you're playing a gig, how do you get the audience to share in that feeling, that joy that you get from playing jazz music? Well, I'm sure, I bet that Nick and Paul are going to agree with me about this. Part of it is our intentionality and the passion and commitment we put into playing music because I feel like, uh, Paul, I've had the same thing that you mentioned earlier that I've, I've been on different tours and someone will come up to me and say, oh, I don't like jazz, but I really liked what you played. And oh, I love this. Oh, that's so cool. You're, you know, whatever, you're playing jazz on an acoustic guitar and I, I bought all your CDs. And but I think some of that is because yeah. they're picking up on my yeah. love of the music. They're picking up on the. It's infectious. Yeah, the, that's exactly so. Whether, you know, you were talking, Paul, about something being singable or keeping that singability aspect, but it's also about communicating from your heart and being able to draw people in by the intention of what you're playing. If you really believe it, you can sell it to the sell it to an audience, you know, because I've done tours where I'm playing to as part of a package, a guitar night package with different guitars, and they're not jazz audiences. So I'm not going to come out and play my samba version of Giant Steps. Maybe not. Maybe that's not the time to do it. Maybe I play a Beatles song in a jazz, in my jazz version, but it then I have I can bring people in and they've got something they can relate to, you know, so. What is something about uh, playing acoustic uh, guitar jazz music? that people might not know. And Mimi, we talked about this earlier uh, before we started recording. Um, this, this was a question that kind of sparked your interest too. Do you want to add any, any, uh, anything to that question? Well, in my experience as someone that sort of, you know, b built a reputation as a straight ahead jazz player playing, you know, hollow body guitar and, and for lack of a better word, straight ahead jazz, even though on every album I've ever done, I've always got one or two acoustic pieces, whether it's a ballad or a samba or an original, whatever. So I've always, that's always been a part of my musical uh, personality, if you will. But in any event, uh, what I have found of many jazz players, it's for one thing, straight ahead players, they're very unwilling to sort of wean themselves from uh, their hollow body guitars, they're really used to that sound and they feel like oh, I've got my sound, I got my thing that I do and this is what I do. And so there's a sort of resistance to it and they also associate it with, um, you know, simpler music and, and it's sometimes just chop wise, there are certain things that are much harder to play on an acoustic guitar than, you know, on, on your on a hollow body. But in any event, I don't see so much division between genres of music. I just think there's great music and then there's not so great music uh, because 
I mean, I want to be a human sponge as both a player and a composer. I want to take in everything. In any event, and playing an acoustic guitar, playing jazz on an acoustic guitar, uh, it's different challenges for me as a player, but it's also has different opportunities. And I love that. I'm an acoustic musician and I, and I, you know, I don't use pedals and a bunch of effects and all that stuff. It's just me and a guitar, whether it's my hollow body or it's my, you know, um, you know, it's a big jazz box custom or it's, it's you know, my uh, acoustic, my Taylor acoustic. I'm, I'm just, I'm an acoustic musician and I want to try to create real music with it, so. Uh, yeah, so I think at, at its core, you develop a different set of muscles, you develop a different technique. There are certainly things like, like Mimi said, you know, there's things you simply cannot get away with on, on an acoustic guitar that you can on on an electrified instrument whether you're playing like a full electric instrument or electric or an electrified hollow body um you know i kind of think of it and i'm going to preface all this by saying it, charlie christian is one of my absolute idols uh, i absolutely love charlie christian but you know jazz guitar really can be divided kind of pre and post charlie christian because with charlie and with that electric approach of the instrument trying to make the instrument sound like a horn trying to trying to play in a, in a way comparable to a horn um that intent in and of itself kind of changes the character of the instrument you're trying to have your instrument sound like a different instrument right you're trying to to you're trying to repurpose your the instrument which has some natural inherent qualities kind of in a different direction um and and don't get me wrong i mean the, there's players that came after charlie christian who are phenomenal and among my favorites but it's a, it's really kind of a different thing at, at its core and so when i started exploring this music and kind of looking kind of looking at charlie as the pivot point and kind of looking backwards i started discovering that like the players that came before him developed all these 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 approaches on the instrument to just compensate for the fact that they're playing a relatively quiet instrument and and, and in a lot of cases we're doing so um in the company of a lot of loud instruments so there are different things they developed to just to 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 be effective to be heard to 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 keep the rhythm going because a lot of times they were in this position of, of keeping the rhythm going and then would have to step out and play eight bars, but, and then jump right back into the rhythm. And, and like, there's, there's an art and, 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 and a craft to all of that. Um, and the other part of it too is, I, I think what, what really attracts me to kind of, again, this kind of notion of pre-bop guitar is that you can really let the guitar be the a guitar. You can do these super guitaristic things that, you know, aren't necessarily um, in the trick bag of kind of a post-bop guitar player, open strings. I'm, and I'm sure I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail for this because I'm sure there's perfect examples for each one of these things, but like open strings and harmonics and you know bigger chords that don't necessarily sound good when amplified um, and all these sorts of kind of fun things. And, and for me, it, 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 it connected me back with when I first started playing guitar and I was still, you know, I would quite literally like beat on the thing to get noises out of it. Cause I was still, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got this guitar. I can hit the wood and it goes boom, 
you know, you do all these weird things with it because you don't really know how to play anything. <laughs> and it, it, it kind of like it, it's to, to borrow the phrase of du jour, it sparked the joy that, that, that really kind of got me going on the instrument to begin with. And there's a lot of that, you know, whether, whether it's, you know, I, I, these are a lot of things I, I see and hear Paul do when I see him play, you know, there's some, some really kind of guitaristic type things that, you know, again, you can really only get away with playing on an acoustic guitar. Um, and, it, and it just, it just, it just is a whole nother dynamic of the instrument. Mm-hmm. Paul, um, what is something that uh, is specific to playing jazz on acoustic guitar that maybe other guitarists even don't know about? Well, for me, and I know I'm like a one-trick pony here, but um, once Django came on the scene, even with his incredibly mangled hand that would have sidelined nine out of ten guitar players, he managed to be so connected to the instrument that even someone like Andre Segovia was like, wait, wait, what? What are you? I didn't know you could do that with a guitar. And to me, that's kind of like the ultimate validation because at a certain point in time, Segovia kind of was ground zero for all things guitar by putting the solo guitar on stage without other instruments. He brought it from an accompaniment instrument into the world of being just a solo instrument, you know? The idea of tone, the idea of, of doing things other than just merely striking the string. And, 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 and again, this is not to denigrate Charlie Christian, but, but for me, so much of the driving force behind making this, getting this music back in people's, in front of them, was that all the jazz books that I grew up with talked about the the history of jazz guitar, the tree of jazz guitar as being 90% Charlie Christian. And everybody was a descendant of that. And maybe there was, you know, 2% for Eddie Lang and 2% for Carl Crest, Dick McDonough, you know, um, George Van Epps and the, the acoustic chord solo guys. But there was never any mention. There are so many books where they omitted Django. Even Ken Burns, for freaks and sake, skipped over the whole thing about Django. And now, even though it kind of is intimidating to me because the parade has kind of come and, and passed me by, but there's just so many people that are so deep into the Django thing now and really absorbing his lessons of musicality and guitaristics and guitar technique. And like Nick said, all the things that you can get out of a guitar, taking a, a quiet instrument and trying to make it louder, you know, among other loud jazz instruments. Django figured that out right away. He's like, well, fuck the tuba and the drums and the piano and the trombone. Let's put the guitar in a sympathetic setting where you can hear it and have just other stringed instruments. That alone is kind of a brilliant mind blowing thing. If you just allow the fact that nobody else had done that, there were very, very few string bands with, with virtuoso jazz going on before the hot club of France. Um, and the, the the tree of jazz guitar, you know, it's just, it's so great now that there's recognition for what Django did. It doesn't have to be all about Django, but just about what he did and how many descendants now there are. Because if you pull any, any of the great jazz guitars, whether they play electric or acoustic, they're going to, at some point, really have something great to say about Django that he influenced them as a guitarist you know not that they wanted to follow him or copy him but just that he set such a deep example of what you could do with the instrument you know that 
I, I'm just really, really happy to see so many people getting it about the acoustic. I think there's like a whole lot of really interesting stuff about how, how, what you can do with the guitar and who may have been doing it a hundred years ago already. And it's still being discovered and unearthed. I will concur that there are very, there's a lot of very guitaristic things that I love to explore both with harmonics, artificial and naturally occurring, uh, all uh, percussive elements. There's so many different aspects to playing an acoustic guitar that, uh, you know, you can you can try to do on a hollow body, but it's a di very different feel, and it it, it is the, the, just the guitaristic quality of of playing an acoustic. What it brings out in your playing, uh, in my playing, is a whole different thing, and it, and it's an important. I think it's a very important aspect. Just like as you know, for me, I don't know about for Paul or Nick, but I studied classical guitar for several years back in New York before I moved here, and that informs my playing as well. So everything that we do. Uh, makes us uh, a better total musician, total all around, uh, exploratory, explorative and creative, you know, artist. That's one of the things I love about your playing, Mimi, is like you said, you're a sponge and it, it really comes out in your playing. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's very kind. It's very kind. And since everyone on our panel today is based in the Bay Area, I have to ask, what makes San Francisco a different place for jazz guitarists? You know, I, I thought you would ask this question. And so I've been thinking a lot about kind of what makes the Bay Area different. I think I, I think the big thing is that we kind of exist, and at least this was the case possibly until fairly recently, in this kind of post, this kind of culture that very much is a product of, of, of the 1960s. Um, and, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, the guitar really kind of staked its claim in the Bay Area um, as a result of the folk music boom of the late 50s and early 60s. And then, you know, the rock boom here in the in San Francisco Bay Area of the 1960s. And that really kind of established the Bay Area as a guitar town. Um, and of course, like, you know, the guitar, of course, took off in popularity after the Beatles in general. But I think particularly here in the Bay Area, it became like, you know, the guitar became a thing. And I think subsequently, whether you look at like, you know, Jerry Garcia and Dave Grisman or, you know, Dan Hicks, may he rest in peace. Um, you know, they kind of explored all these different kind of frankly weird tangents in music, you know, that weren't necessarily being explored in other cities to the same extent. And I think to some extent that the San Francisco Bay Area guitar legacy, if there is one, is can somewhat trace itself back to that. I certainly feel like a little more eclecticism than, I, than I've experienced in other cities. Um, I kind of think we get away with some weirdness that 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 New York doesn't get away with, you know, as much as I love New York. Well, you know, you know, Wes Montgomery wrote a, a classic piece called West Coast Blues and which actually has great lyrics. I've recorded that with some vocalists that have really cool lyrics, um, uh, in addition to being just a nice, you know, blowing tune in six. But, um, you know, uh, there was a West Coast jazz uh, thing that was associated, and some people think about Jerry Mulligan and some of the stuff that he brought to the table, but I think essentially, yeah, cool jazz. And so that was that was sort of a thing. And when I, when I moved here in 1980, 
uh, you know, there was the old Keystone Corner and Joe Henderson, a lot of, a lot of great players that lived here. And so I think, you know, like many different cities, it's gone through uh, different phases, I think, and different uh, sort of eras. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think there's, I, I think there always have been a lot of wonderful players here. And of course, you know, there's wonderful players in every city, but I do think that there is more eclecticism here. I think there's more permission in some ways to just put, you know, put these interesting uh, musical hybrids together and make it make it happen. And it is not that it doesn't happen in New, in New York. Everything happens in New York. So, uh, but I think there is a permission here. There is a, it is a sort of a, there has always been a sense in San Francisco of anything goes and let's, and, but for musicians that are in, also interested in musical excellence, the combination of anything goes with uh, virtuosity can be a cool thing. Yeah, I think we I think we get a lot of um, there's a lot of freedom being just so far removed from from everything. Again, like the, the the West Coast, Left Coast, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's it's like it's like oh yeah, well they're they're those guys. Yeah, of course. Oh, of course they're doing that. They're they're from San Francisco, you know. You know, San Francisco does has a pretty discernible, and this again might be another topic for another another day. But there, there is a a a, a pretty um, pretty straight line as far as the guitar tradition in San Francisco historically in jazz. Um, you know, and and I'll I'll kind of leave this crumb without like going down through the timeline. But um, you know, one of the most important things about San Francisco as a jazz town is that, you know, during the first kind of wave of bands leaving New Orleans in the early 20th century and kind of, uh, you know, uh, starting to spread the music around the United States, um, one of the first kind of big stopping off points was, was San Francisco. Um, so the original Creole Orchestra um, went on a vaudeville tour in the 19 teens. So we're talking over a hundred years ago. Um, and one of the places they played was San Francisco in 1913. And at the time, it, folks that, that know, such as Clint Baker, who Paul mentioned, and Paul knows this, and I'm sure Mimi knows this too. You know, the first jazz bands out of New Orleans had guitars. They did not have banjos. Those, those players used guitars. Um, so Norwood Williams came to San Francisco in 1913 with the original Creole Orchestra playing a guitar. So it's very reasonable to make the assumption that that had an influence on local players um, early on. And you can go from then, you know, you can start putting a timeline together from 1913 all the way up to today of these kind of important guitar players from the Bay Area. The Acoustic Guitar Podcast is brought to you by the team at Acoustic Guitar Magazine. I'm your host, Nick Grizzle, joined for this episode by co-host Mimi Fox. Our theme song was composed by Adam Perlmutter and performed for this episode by Mimi Fox. The Acoustic Guitar Podcast is directed and edited by Joey Lusterman. Tanya Gonzalez is our producer. Executive producers for the Acoustic Guitar Podcast are Lizzie Lusterman and Stephanie Campos Dalbroy. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support us, Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash acousticguitarplus or find the link in our show notes for this episode. As a supporter, you'll have access to exclusive bonus episodes along with other special perks. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support.